Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dialexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy of research to contemporary issues. My name is Dara Srivastava, and I'm your host. And today we have with us Dr. Simon Brown, who is a postdoctoral fellow uh, in the Foundations of Mind at Johns Hopkins University, uh, where he teaches and researches philosophy and collaborates with the Perception and Mind Lab. He completed his PhD in philosophy at Columbia University and completed his BA and master's at the University of Oxford. Uh, his work is broadly focused on philosophy of mind. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, thank you for your time and for being here today. Um, let's move on to our discussion today where we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into uh, your research and studies and also what you personally think about philosophy and your relationship to it. Uh, our episode today is specifically about uh, philosophy of mind, but in the context of animals, which is what your research is focused on. Uh, so let's get started. Um, although I did briefly introduce you, uh, for our audience that may not know a lot about you, could you please provide a little bit more information on who you are, uh, your background, and your relationship to philosophy? Um, what does philosophy mean to you, and sort of how did you get interested or uh, learn more about philosophy? Yeah, uh, that's a big question. Uh, so, I mean, I think, well, maybe we can just start with what philosophy is, right? So I think it, there are kind of two different strands to what I think about that. So there's kind of, on the one hand, it's an academic discipline, right? Um, it's kind of defined by what people study in philosophy departments, which is given by this tradition and everyone kind of learns the same sorts of things. Um, everyone, you know, they take an ethics class and a logic class and a history of philosophy class and whatnot. And, and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, I think um, philosophy at a certain level just amounts to kind of thinking hard about stuff um, and, you know, being willing to rethink some of your fundamental assumptions or kind of think about well, why exactly do I believe what I believe and is that really good reason? Just thinking really carefully. Um, and that's something which obviously everyone is capable of to some degree. Um, and I think everyone does to some degree. Um, and you know, the same, and that's certainly true of me and my childhood, right? I would certainly think about these things as, as I think everyone else does growing up. Um, and so, yeah, I think I first got interested in a political philosophy um, when I was a teenager, um, and then I was lucky that my my high school taught philosophy um, at what's called A level, so that's like the the last two years of high school. Um, and so at that time, I would like kind of started reading a lot of philosophy on my own um, and listening to podcasts and things like that. Um, and I think actually pretty early on, I became interested in questions about animals and, um, you know, what does it mean for animals to be conscious? Can we get inside their heads? You know, what do we owe to animals is kind of a related question, right? Um, and yeah, so I was kind of really interested in those issues. And then I went to Oxford as an undergrad. Um, where I studied a degree called philosophy, politics, and economics. Um, and so I, you know, continued doing my political philosophy. I studied you know, Wittgenstein and various things in history of philosophy and a bunch of logic and philosophy of language. Um, and then I kind of went to graduate school, um, first for two years at Oxford, and then I was at Columbia. And, you know, I got more and more interested in these questions about the mind, uh, um, and especially about trying to understand animal minds. And that for me, that meant learning a lot of the science of the mind as well. Um, and we'll talk a bit about the relationship between philosophy and psychology and neuroscience and things later on. But um, yeah, so during grad school, I kind of uh, worked a lot on those kind of questions. Um, 
And now I'm what's called a postdoctoral fellow. So I guess if people don't know, that's kind of, it's a position which is kind of, you have to have your doctorate to get it, but it's kind of not as high status as a professor, right? And it's kind of um, impermanent. So um, hopefully I'll be, become a professor somewhere else in the relatively near future. But um, yeah, so um, my day-to-day -day is very much just kind of doing research and philosophy. Um, yeah. Definitely makes sense. I mean, uh, you're, I think like your story is kind of different from a lot of the other philosophers that I've, I've talked with because like a lot of them stated, oh, we went to college and then, I don't know, like maybe got bored with a class or something and just took philosophy as for fun um, because, um, like, you know, a lot of high schools in America at least don't have philosophy available for school, like for, for high schoolers. So they get introduced to philosophy maybe in college, um, even though the questions everyone has, has been asking since childhood, right, like you mentioned. So definitely like a cool story um, and, you know, just shows how, how valuable philosophy can be throughout an entire period of time, right? Um, so before I discuss your research, um, I actually want to clarify something because in philosophy, when we discuss the mind, um, are we referring to consciousness or are we referring to the brain or a subpart of the brain? Because I know like, you know, back in like ancient Greek, like, you know, the philosophers, like, um, you know, they thought like the dualism, the mind-body dualism, where, you know, the mind is in the brain, but it is not the brain. Um, so like, what really is the distinction, if there is any, and like, what are we talking about when we talk about the mind in philosophy? Yeah, that was such a great question. Um, I think, you know, this is, I've already mentioned kind of what philosophy is, is the big question in philosophy. And in philosophy of mind, the big question is what is the mind, right? Um, and at a certain level, I'm not sure there is a straightforward answer to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, a couple of things you mentioned, right? So one was consciousness. So when we talk about consciousness, usually, what we mean in philosophy is um, the kind of the felt character of experience, or we often use the phrase like what it's like to be you experiencing a red tomato or um, what it's like to uh, you know, feel a really strong emotion, like when someone breaks up with you or something like that. Um, now, that is certainly a mental thing, right? Um, but I think a lot of philosophers and psychologists um, think that there's a lot of stuff going on in the mind which is not conscious. Um, so, I mean, well, there are lots of different examples, and you can go back to kind of Freud, right, has all these kind of unconscious desires going on, um, and that's one kind of thing. Um, there's also probably unconscious learning um, of various kinds which is going on. Uh, but just to kind of take a relatively simple example to kind of get your head around what we might be talking about, um, if you try and understand just seeing stuff, right? So you have this conscious experience of, of vision. Um, now, what goes into that kind of in the brain, there's a whole bunch of stuff which you're not aware of, right? So for example, uh, um, constantly you're doing this thing called um, saccades, so S-A-C-C-A-D-E-S, and that's basically where your eye kind of moves, um, moves around visuals feel very, very quickly. Um, and you just don't notice that. <laughs> you're not conscious of that. Um, and supporting that, there are all these things going on in the mind where you're kind of calculating, you know, when shall I card, where shall I card, and then you're kind of um, filling in. So, so what reaches your experience isn't everything which your retina um, gets stimulated with, right? You've, you've kind of experienced the stable world and you don't even notice the cards. So there's all these kind of computations or um, activity going on in the mind just supporting that, for example. Um, so that suggests that, okay, there's stuff in the mind which 
is not conscious. So consciousness can't be what the mind is. Um, so the other thing which you suggested, right, was, well, maybe everything in the brain is the mind. Um, and, you know, there's something attractive about that, but at the same time, that's probably not true either. There's probably, there's probably stuff going on in the brain which isn't really mental. It's, I mean, well, certainly there's some activity going on in the brain which isn't mental because there's just, like, um, blood flowing around and things like that. Um, but also, you know, the brain is doing a lot of stuff, like just kind of regulating your... Um, um, regulating your body to kind of make sure everything's kind of ticking over normally. Um, and that stuff is very kind of fixed and mechanical and it, um, it doesn't really seem to have any kind of connection to thinking or to experience or to anything like that. Um, okay. So probably it's not consciousness and it's not the brain either. <laughs> um, it's probably something kind of in between in some sense. Um, and, you know, one, um, one kind of approach which is quite popular at the moment, um, or in the last few decades, I suppose, is, well, maybe the mind is just, or at least a really, really important aspect of the mind is it's kind of being about the, about things. So you have these things, so like, it's not just that you have a perception that you perceive a book on the table. It's not just that you um, think about what you're going to have, well, it's not just that you think, but you think about what you're going to have for dinner, right? And you want, want a certain thing, or you kind of... Um, and so, you know, maybe there's something special about kind of having these states which are about the world. Um, and maybe there's something special about that, partly because they kind of interact with each other in a way which allows you to kind of behave fle flexibly, right? So you can produce behavior which is going to benefit you in all kinds of different situations because you're taking information in from the world, processing it in your mind um, in these kind of very complicated, flexible ways, and figuring out what to do. And then that's kind of translating into motor control um, or into action. So yeah, maybe the mind is that, just like complicated processing of stuff about it, about the world, right? Um, but of course, that then opens up all kinds of questions, right? Because maybe there are borderline cases, right? So, you know, that's maybe a description of what's going on in humans. But then as you look at other organisms, whether that's, you know, an octopus or a chimpanzee or a, a bee or a, an E. coli bacterium um, or a tree. Um, a lot of them are doing things which look a bit like that at some level of abstraction, right? Um, but it's not exactly the same, right? It's not as complicated. They're not kind of representing the world in quite as rich a way. Or then, um, I mean, in some cases they are, but, um, you know, you can see how, well, maybe there's going to be a question about, well, do ants have a mind? Yeah, probably. Okay. What about worms? Yeah. Yeah, okay. But, but it's very, very simple. Like there's, there's less kind of complexity there. Okay, well, what about um, oysters? Uh, I don't know, maybe. Like there's, there's a lot less complexity, that's for sure. Um, and so, you know, there may just be a whole load of borderline cases. And personally, I'm kind of fine with that. But in a kind of traditional dualist way of thinking, right, where we think that there is this thing called the mind, and it's kind of very distinct from the physical and it's this special kind of substance which lives on after death and things like that. If you're coming from that kind of framework, then you really don't, you, you're, you're much less likely to be comfortable with these kind of like graded, um, graded answers to these kind of questions. That definitely makes sense. And I mean, like just understanding conceptually, like what the mind could be seems like it's just really controversial. Cause I, I feel like every single person has a different interpretation of the mind. And like, even like after reading, like, you know, you mentioned like the consciousness or like the other aspect of thinking everything in the brain um, is the mind. There's just a lot of borderline cases that would kind of sway you towards one of them, or at least in between 
the gradient, right? Yeah, and like, that's what I right. From what I was thinking, like what I remember, if I remember correctly, like some sea animals, like sea urchins or like sea stars, don't even have a brain, if I remember correctly. So like, if then we're interpreting them as like having minds, then the second possible, like second option of like everything in the brain is the mind is like completely thrown out, right? Because if those animals have brain or have minds, they don't have brains, then there's no way that everything in the brain can be the mind because they just don't have them. But those are interesting cases that we could probably explore later. Um, I do want to ask you about the ways in which you do your research, because like all of these questions seem to um, obviously have a lot of nuances in them. And we we're talking about the borderline cases, right? Um, so like, are philosophical interpretations meant to be like a complement to neurobiological approaches or evolutionary approaches? And or are they supposed to be like justifications for neural activity in our brain? Or like, what really is the end goal in exploring philosophy of mind? Is it just exploring that to like just explain the human? Or is it meant to complement science? Or is science meant to complement philosophy? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, my perspective on this is very much, um, there's not really a strong distinction between science and philosophy. Um, I think that there, at the very least, there's got to be a lot of interaction between the two. Uh, um, and I think, you know, philosophers benefit a lot from talking to scientists um, and learning about scientific findings. Um, and the science, I think, benefits from the philosophy as well. Um, now, how does that actually work in practice? It's, I mean, it, it kind of differs case by case, but I think often, well, here's a kind of crude sketch to kind of give you a sense of what sometimes goes on when these things are productive is, um, you know, scientists, they spend a lot of time running experiments, right? Um, and they do that with some kind of theory in mind, but often that theory is a little bit vague or underspecified, or they don't know exactly how it kind of maps onto certain things kind of in our ordinary experience, or, um, um, you know, they, there are just things in their theory where they kind of want to, you know, they, it's kind of leaving, some, leaving that for a rainy day when they've got time to think about things, right? Now, what is that thinking about things? That's thinking really hard. That is philosophy, right? Um, and so philosophers, if we're not, you know, we don't have to spend so much time running experiments, so we can learn from their experiments and we can spend our time doing some of the thinking, right? Um, now, neither of these things can really happen independently, and I'm certainly not saying that the scientists can't do any of that thinking about things like getting clear on questions themselves, right? Um, but I think philosophers have something to kind of add to that mix. Um, basically because, um, you know, we've read certain kinds of things which the scientists might not have read. We've kind of spent more time thinking about certain kinds of questions which they haven't thought about. Um, and so philosophers are often very good at kind of making really fine-grained distinctions. Um, we're often really good at kind of reframing, well, what is, what is the big question we're asking here? Or like, what is this theory really supposed to be doing? Um, and we're often quite good at kind of making connections to like broader topics. Um, and like putting putting all the different bits of science together, uh, well, different bits of science and other things, you know, common sense, ordinary experience, like showing how they all, all, all fit together or where they don't fit together, in which case we need to change something in that picture, right? Um, so that's kind of broadly how I see at least what I do within, within this kind of project of understanding the mind. So like given that, you know, the, the research and those explanations, um, you know, I can definitely see how like science complements Philosophy and philosophy also complements science. I mean, they go hand in hand. And you're right about like the ways in which like 
if scientists just think really hard, that's kind of philosophy in itself. So, um, like, definitely, like, there is a very strong linkage, even though, like, some traditionally, like, people might not think that linkage is there. Mm -hmm. So, it's, like, definitely important to recognize that that linking is there. Um, But I wanted to ask you, like, you know, specifically in your research, right, um, given that those questions are explored maybe in both in science and philosophy, what do you think with your research is the distinction between the human and the animal mind, right? Like evolutionarily, like every animal is different. Um, How would philosophy be able to categorize an animal's mind? Like, for example, I have a labradoodle. Um, Like, how would that mind be different than like a gorilla or even my brain at that point? Um, And how is like philosophy able to distinguish those those differences? Um, And also kind of related to this is, you know, like the humanistic approach in psychology says, says that the human mind is completely different from any other species. What has your research said about that? And like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so, so I think in a way, so yeah, one of the things which I said philosophy can do, right, is rethink exactly what question you're asking and say, well, what is the big question here? Um, and I think, so this first question you asked, what is the difference between humans and animals? Um, I think that's one of these questions where we need to rethink it. Um, It's a question which people ask a lot and have asked throughout history. Um, And often people have just kind of given answers. Like there's this weird tendency of people to just kind of assert something without any argument or evidence at all. So they'll just kind of come along and say, the difference between humans and animals is that humans listen to Mozart or something. And you're like, well, what? but, you know, even beside that, there's this long tr- philosophical tradition of saying, making really quite substantive claims where it's like, well, look, um, humans can reason um, and animals can't reason or humans have language. Animals don't have that. Or um, humans live in social groups. Animals don't. Or humans have tools. Animals don't. Um, and the one which I've really focused on has been um, um, like animals are stuck in time. Right. So they can't think about the past or the future. Um, they they kind of they only have a conception of what's going on right now and they can't link it to a broader broader structure. Um, and you see these kind of ideas cropping up all over the place. Um, but I think that approach is kind of misguided um, for a bunch of reasons. There's some of them you already started saying, right? So the idea that there's the difference between animals and humans is probably wrong, right? So there's probably a lot of differences, as I already hinted at. I mean, not all of the ones which I just said, I believe, but um, you know, there probably are a lot of quite small differences between humans and animals and other animals, I should say. Um, the other big issue kind of connected to, what, to that qualification of well, other animals is, well, look, humans are animals, chimpanzees are animals, octopuses are animals, elephants are animals, bees are animals. All of these animals have completely different minds, right? Um, so it's not, it's not like, well, there's the animal mind and then there's the human mind. It's like, well, no, there's the human mind, there's the chimpanzee mind, there's the crow mind, there's octopus mind. And, you know, probably the chimpanzee mind is a lot closer to the human mind than it is to the octopus mind. Um, Does that mean that the chimpanzee and the human mind are the same? No, absolutely not. Um, So in that way, I I think we we probably need to kind of rethink that picture of things, um, where there's kind of, where we can ask, look, what's the difference between humans and animals? but at the same time, I think there's a really good question in the vicinity, which a lot of those traditional um, traditional answers are kind of, they're still relevant, right? And so that, that question is something like, well, what are 
the mental capacities or mental states or mental traits which make a really, really big difference to how the mind functions overall, right? So you might think, well, look, some minds have, I don't know, the ability to, um, you know, so some people are just really good at thinking about cars and, you know, doing mechanics. Um, and some people are not good at fixing life. Now, does that make a huge difference to how your mind functions overall? Not really. Like, it, it's kind of, it's a nice skill to have, but it's not like, okay, well, you're a different kind of creature to me, right? Whereas if it's something like, oh, well, you know, some animals can think about time and some animals are stuck in the present, um, that's a really, that probably makes a difference to a whole bunch of other stuff because it probably means, oh, well, you know, if you're stuck in the present, then you can't do all, all kinds of planning. You can't really understand um, how your past fits together. Um, you can't learn all kinds of things which require kind of making connections between stuff which happened, um, you know, 10 days ago and stuff which happened five days ago. Um, and, you know, so it's probably like a really limiting thing. But the same goes for language. Language probably also makes a big difference. Um, now, but notice that when I asked, when I said said the new question right what 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 makes a big di what makes a big difference to the mind overall um i wasn't presupposing that anything is going to be like completely unique to human and so you know there has been this tradition in kind of animal psychology over the last 30 years where people have said the thing which is unique to animals is oh sorry the thing which is unique to humans is using tools and then we found oh no actually crows can use tools and monkeys can use tools um, okay, well, the thing that is unique to animals is having really complicated social systems. Well, you know, monkeys have pretty complicated social systems, like not as complicated as like the United States, but still pretty complicated. Um, oh, the thing that's unique to, to humans is, um, uh, is language, right? Well, it turns out that lots of animals can do quite complicated things, like they can have quite complicated kinds of communication, which are language-like even if they're probably not exactly the same as human language. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that the overall picture um, is that there's probably not like any one massive difference between humans and all other animals. Um, but there are probably a lot of things which kind of go together, like having, like being really good at think, having very complicated social structures and being able to think about them, um, having language, having a really rich, sophisticated understanding of time, having the ability to form theories. Like there are all these things which actually probably go together in quite interesting ways, which are kind of really ramped up in humans relative to, to other animals. And other animals have like versions of this and some of them are really good at some of them and some of them are like even better than us on some dimensions. Um, but yeah, so I think overall the, the picture is complicated. Um, yeah, like, and then like just, I guess maybe like to summarize it, it could al almost be like, obviously the human is going to be different from every other animal and each animal is going to be different from others but the like central features that all of us exhibit may be amplified in humans but they're definitely still present um in animals and some animals might have even amplified um like certain skills that humans might not have and so maybe like exploring these minds can tell us a lot more about our own minds um, and maybe it could be easier to explore it. I'm not exactly sure, but we'll find out with the next question, which um, is about how your research is conducted. So how do you, um, you know, like given that these questions are all kind of neuro neuroscience related and evolution related, as well as obviously philosophy, but how do you conduct your research? Do you do like 
case studies or like longitudinal studies or do you, uh, you know, I was talking earlier to Dr. Ian Tully, who quote said that he is like a sitting at the desk kind of philosopher where he just reads philosophy and then outputs a result. Um, is that similar to what you do or do you do maybe like some empirical research or how is your research conducted in the field? Yeah, so I think in some sense, I'm a sitting at the desk philosopher, but my desk is actually like literally located in a lab, um, like a psychology lab. So, um, but yeah, so I have not run many experiments myself, um, but I spend a lot of time. Um, and this is one of the things which is great about Johns Hopkins as an institution that we have this really, really close integration between philosophy and psychology and neuroscience, which is kind of, it's a lot closer than a lot of other universities. Um, so I spend a lot of time kind of talking to psychologists and neuroscientists and biologists and computer scientists um, and, you know, reading science um, as well as reading philosophy. And, um, and so, you know, some of what I do is kind of helping them with thinking through their experiments, which they're running right now. Um, but some of it is like, okay, here's this huge body of work. Um, you know, there are all these results in across all these different disciplines, right? How do they fit together? Um, and so it's a lot of it is this kind of like thinking really hard about stuff um, aspect of things rather than actually like getting my hands too dirty myself. But, you know, I, I certainly could see myself doing some experiments um, in in the relatively near future. Um, you know, I, I think the border between these things is, is and should be very porous. That definitely makes sense. And I actually like the way that um, like the psychology department is related or interrelated kind of with philosophy because like. Um, again, this goes back to like just general how like philosophy is interpreted and maybe this is just for me because I'm a high school student, but like high school um, kind of like there's a stigmatization of philosophy almost where it's like that isn't the field you want to go into really like they feel like it it's only sitting at the desk doing research and thinking about things and like, you know, you have like the Greek philosophers and that's kind of just like the stereotype of philosophy, but it's really a lot broader than that and there's so many fields of philosophy especially with like um with like research um in a lab and it's really cool to see that your lab or your desk is like literally in a in a lab that's pretty dope um your your dissertation talks um about like a creature's cognitive relationship to time and we talked a little bit about this earlier um and how that relationship is crucial to the functioning of its mind um i'm curious about the ways in which animals perceive time is it different than how humans in, 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 interpret time. Um, and I guess also because it's important to that question, how do humans interpret time? Um, has philosophy explored like a you know plausible ex explanation for that question or interpretation? Um, because like, I'm sure that there's some relationship to the Gregorian calendar or like, you know, being entirely in the moment or like, you know, how maybe like the cavemen interpreted time is far different from how we would interpret time in the 21st century. So maybe like how has time evolved and like, how is it different um, for animals if it is different? Yeah, um, a lot of stuff there. So um, yes, yeah, so maybe we should start with how humans think about time and what that means first. So, you know, humans think about time in lots of ways, right? We can write poetry about time where we think about it whatever, as a river or something. Um, we can do uh, fundamental physics where we think about time as, well, really it's just one dimension in this thing called space-time, which is curved and all that stuff, right? Um, but I think, I think there's probably an ordinary way of thinking about time, which is quite common and possibly universal across humans, um, 
with you know it's just kind of it's something like this well look um there's kind of a, a line right of when you can place events on that line so that everything comes before or or after other events um and you can place them all relative to each other and you know they're all a certain amount of time um you know there's a certain duration between each pair of events um, and they're all kind of in a good linear order and so you can think things like well you know the battle of waterloo was after the battle of hastings but it was before the first world war like so like quite um, literally a timeline yeah right exactly <laughs> like, I, I think like that's kind of our ordinary way of thinking about time um and the other aspect to, to it is right we have this idea of well there's this thing called the present and this thing called the past and this thing called the future and so all of that is fine um turns out that some of that actually physics complicates a bit but um it it's good enough kind of on the scale which we normally think right so when we're talking about kind of events on this planet um, um and so you know that way of thinking of time kind of shows up in most of the sciences right like when we do it when we're understanding like how populations grow in biology or understanding how um, um I don't know how how inflation is changing. Like that's how inflation is changing over time, where time is understood in this in this sense. Um, so, and that kind of way of thinking about time is probably really really important um, to all of our other thinking. So it's probably really important, for example, to how we understand causality. So we tend to think, you know, causes come before effects in this way. And you know, if you discover that, you know, if you're trying to like figure out the causes of the First World War, um, and you say, oh, well, maybe the Treaty of Versailles caused the First World War. Oh, sorry, yeah. Maybe the Treaty of Versailles caused the First World War. And then you realize, oh, well, no, wait, that came after the First World War. So that's immediately you've kind of like ruled it out, right? Um, and it's probably really important if you want to like plan, like have any kind of complicated plan of action. Um, and it's probably really important for kind of understanding, like learning about the world and figuring out how things unfold and things like that um okay so that's one kind of aspect and that's a really important thing which humans do and then related to that there's certain kinds of mental states which probably are defined in terms of time as well so like you know arguably you can only really remember stuff which is in the past you can only really like plan for stuff which is in the future um uh you can only really perceive stuff which is happening now or at least is where you're kind of receiving information about it now um and so these two kind of aspects of things i think are are what might be different in a lot of animals and certainly so there's this tradition which says look animals don't have that conception of time at all they can just think about stuff in the present moment um, and they don't have they don't have really rich memories um, like they can remember things like um you know if you know, if that guy says fetch, then I should like bring him a stick or whatever. Um, but that's not really a tense thing, right? That's not like I remember, um, like that guy said fetch 10 days ago, and then I got him a stick and then he gave me a reward. So now I should do that. Like they don't think about it in those terms. They just have this big, if, if says fetch, then go get a stick, right? So that's the kind of tradition. Um, now, again, this is one of those things where when people have actually started studying animals, they found that things are a lot more complicated. Um, and so here is one kind of experiment which was done by um, Nicola Clayton and colleagues um, with scrub jays, which are 
I guess you're in California, so you probably know us from JSON, but for, I guess, other people, they're, they're a bird, they're in the same family as blue jays and crows and ravens and things like that, which all of that family tends to be very, very smart in lots of ways. Um, right, so it turns out that you can, so scrub jays do this thing where they bury food all the time. Um, and it turns out that you can kind of experimentally manipulate things in such a way that you can tell that when they make their decision about, well, what am I going to dig up? That is responsive to how long ago they buried the food, right? So they, in some sense, know that, well, this is like this thing which I buried was a worm and worms decay really, really quickly. Um, so that's probably going to be have rotted by now because I buried it four hours, uh, uh, sorry, I buried it a day ago, right? Whereas this other thing which I buried a day ago is a peanut um, and that's probably still fine. So I'll dig that up, right? But here over here, I have a worm which I buried only four hours ago and so that's probably still fresh. So I'll go for that. So it, they display all this behavior, which looks like they kind of have these rich memories of, of burying these things and know how long ago they, they buried it. Um, and so then there's kind of a really interesting question of, okay, well, what exactly does that memory represent? Like, is it like when we remember stuff? Like, is it is it like if I remember how I got to work yesterday or... Um, do they really have an understanding of time there? Or is it just that they kind of have a kind of much more rudimentary, like they automatically just kind of uh, like forget about worms after a certain amount of time or something like that without, without really knowing, oh, well, that's because worms rot. They take one day to rot and this has been one day, therefore it's right. Like that kind of reasoning, maybe, maybe they don't need that to do, to do the behavior which they do. Um, and so a lot of the work which I do is kind of, this, these kind of interpretive questions of like, well, what exactly do these experiments show? Um, and personally, I think they show quite a lot. I, I, I think I think the scriptures probably have a, a they at the very least they kind of um, have a representation of look, I buried a worm an hour uh, a day ago or four hours ago, whatever it is, um, which well they are representing the kind of temporal interval and they're able to think about that, um, but not everyone agrees with that. Um, so there's kind of a debate about how to interpret those kind of cases. So like, would that be considered as like temporal capacities, which is something that you talk about in your, in your dissertation, or uh, is that something completely different? And could you like expand a little bit more on what you, you say, like it tells a lot, but like, what is that a lot? Like, what does it tell us specifically about these animals um, that we can use to understand more about just the, the animals as well as like ourselves? Um, yeah, so so yeah, so when I use the expression temporal capacities, I'm just kind of using that as a shorthand for something like um, they have capacities which are related to time in an interesting way, right? So that might be because they're representing time, or it might be because they have like memories or planning or something like that, which is like really bound up with time in an interesting way. Um, yeah, I don't mean that to be like a big technical term, which is like a music. Yeah. Um, um, Right. So what was the next question? Yeah. So why or what exactly, what exactly do scrub jays have? Well, I guess. Um, yeah. So it turns out that, um, so we can do a lot of experiments with scrub jays and people have done a lot of experiments with scrub jays. And so what they've shown is that it's not just that they remember how long ago they buried a worm or something like that. They also can plan for the future, at least in some interesting sense. 
and also the ways in which they use their memory of the worm is like really quite flexible. Um, so for example, they can learn like, oh, well, actually it turns out worms decay faster than I thought they did. Um, and so then they'll adjust and they'll, um, you know, they'll kind of realize that a whole bunch of worms are probably rotted, which before they thought would be fresh, right? So they can do kind of lo lots of complicated things like that. Um, now, there are still more things which we would like to know, I think. So for example, like what exactly do they remember about this thing? So we know that they remember what they buried, where they buried it, how long ago they buried it, also who was watching them when they buried it. So like if another scrub jay was watching them, then if that other scrub jay is likely to steal their food, then as soon as they've gone around the corner, they'll go back, dig it up, bury it somewhere else. Um, uh, so we know that they at least remember that stuff. Um, but what else do they remember? And like, what is it? And how do they remember it? Right? So do they kind of have a picture in their head in the way that, that you might, if you remember what happened yesterday? Um, or is it much more kind of bound to like, oh, well, no, I just, rep I, I represent these four variables about, and I can only represent food burying incidents because I can only represent what, where, when, and who. Um, and that has to be related to the food. Or is it much more kind of flexible and where they could really, in principle, they could remember kind of any event which they took part in. And I think that's something where we, we don't yet know. And so that's another thing which philosophy can do is like help sort out, well, what are the really interesting questions here? Um, and what could we test for? Um, and so, you know, some of my work has been saying, um, you know, the, the richness of the memory is really, really important um, because it's important to kind of how how they think generally, if they have access to these really rich memories. Um, it, it opens up to all, it opens up all kinds of learning, um, which you wouldn't be able to perform otherwise. That's really interesting, especially like that fact about scrub jays, because like, like just conceptually thinking about it, it seems very evolutionary based, um, mm -hmm. just on the way that like, that like stealing natural selection in general, like you have to make sure you're like food isn't getting taken away, right? But I do think it's like fascinating the way that they're able to readjust um, for whether or not, you know, like something is drawn in quicker than they expected. Um, and, you know, like even like, in, I guess, environmental changes would also come into that factor as well, maybe, oh, yeah. which would be, which is really, really cool and kind of just shows how complex creatures are, which we kind of take for granted, like deconstructing it, we can see everything now, but like when we just think about it or like see it happen in daily life, we don't really like think about it on that level, which is like really fascinating. And another aspect or another, like, I guess, object or life or organism that we take for granted is like trees and plants. So I'm curious on the relationship of like consciousness or philosophy of mind uh, through like plants and through animals. So I have interviewed um, Professor Ananthaida from San Jose State University who does a lot of philosophy of mind research underneath like plants. Um, so I'm wondering like what the what the differences are and like what the similarities are between exploring plants and animals, um, as well as like maybe why both of them can be beneficial um, together. Yeah, so I think um, so the thing about consciousness is we really don't have a good grasp of what it is. Um, and kind of as a result of that, it's really hard to know how to ask well, is this thing conscious or is this thing conscious? Um, and so you have people both in philosophy and in science who've defended a really wide range of views, right? So you've got some people who say, look, only humans are conscious. Um, you've got other people who say, yeah, humans are conscious, like probably other primates are conscious, 
maybe a few other animals, but that's kind of it. Um, you've got other people who say, well, look, it's kind of it's kind of the ones who we kind of common sense think of as conscious. So, you know, that certainly is going to include like pigs and chickens and um, maybe fish, but it probably doesn't include insects. Um, you know, then you have some people saying, well, yeah, actually insects are conscious. Um, and there are really kind of interesting arguments for that, which I find at least kind of somewhat compelling. Um, but then you have people who go much further and they go to, well, look, plants are conscious, mushrooms are conscious, bacteria are conscious, um, rocks are conscious, the universe is conscious, um, electrons are conscious, uh, also you get societies are conscious, um, and of course, you know, computers are conscious, like, and it's really hard to kind of do a, like, systematic argument for any of these. Now, with plants, you get scientists and some philosophers defending that in kind of, kind of interesting ways where it's like, well, the plants, they are able to kind of learn about things in some sense. Um, they are able to like signal to each other in some sense. Um, they are able to um, respond to their environment in some sense. Like they, you know, they grow towards beneficial nutrients and towards the light and things like that. Um, now the question then is, well, okay, what does that, established like do, do these things really show that the plant is conscious or do they just show well the plant is doing complicated stuff which we hadn't realized how complicated the plant could do how com how complicated the stuff the plant could do is. um and i very much lean towards the latter view and one reason is that we know that all of the things which i just mentioned um like certain kinds of learning responding to stimuli um uh all, you know all, all of those things happen in humans unconsciously um so and you know often i mean a lot of them happen in single cells right um or like just in single neurons or or just in the vertebrae or something like that um and i think that's pretty good reason to think well these things happen unconsciously. um another reason that i'm kind of skeptical about plants being conscious is i think you don't really get any connection to a perspective or a point of view or like a, a subject for, for the plant. And um, so the way that I characterized consciousness earlier, right, was, well, it's something it's like to be in this state for me, right? Um, now that seems, and one of the interesting things about that is, well, there seems like when I experience the world that I seem to be kind of binding together all kinds of different features, like I'm seeing a bunch of different colors and shapes um, and objects with those colors and shapes. And I'm also hearing stuff and I'm kind of connecting those things together. I'm also feeling a certain kind of way about it. I'm kind of, um, you know, oh, well, you know, that, that book looks pretty or, oh, well, that thing's a mess over there. That, that's horrible. Um, and I don't think you get that kind of integration in plants from what I've seen. Um, and, you know, I don't really know what these people think would, like, if you just said, well, what is it like to be a pea plant? Um, on a sunny day. I'm not sure they really have an answer to that, which what well, I'm not really I'm not really sure that they have a reason to think that there is an answer to that question, right? So to me, the evidence which I've seen, it looks like they're kind of like, well, yeah, plants are growing towards the sun in quite a complicated way and they're like sending out signals to each other. But that's probably not that different to um like how our immune system is signaling stuff to other parts to different parts of our body, um, or to how, you know, when when there's a lot of light 
my eyes, you know, the pupils expand automatically without me thinking about it. Um, yeah, whereas with insects, you get a bit more than that. Um, so that you, you can find a region of the brain where there is kind of integration of lots of different information. Um, and some of that integration, some of that information relates to animals kind of own bodily state. Some of it relates to um, the environment around insects. Some of it relates to kind of what the insect wants or needs and to what's happened in the last few minutes. Um, so like if you kind of wound an insect, then it will um, always kind of be in a bad mood for a while. Like it will be let or it will kind of be less likely to take risks for a little while. Um, and so that makes me a bit more comfortable with saying insects might be conscious. With plants, I, I don't think the, the evidence is there yet, but with all these things, I think it's really, it's really an open question. <laughs> like we really, we really just don't know that much about consciousness to, to really say anything definitively, even about electron. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that also plays in like a big role in like what your understanding of consciousness is or what your base definition of consciousness is. Yeah. And then you can apply it to different animals, insects, plants. Um, like, I'm, I think integrated information theory, mm -hmm. um, like, often talks about, um, like, how non-living things like rocks can be conscious or something like yeah. that. Um, I think it's like different strengths of consciousness, I believe, uh, if I'm, I might be wrong about that. Um, but like, at least, you know, there's these competing interpretations of what, like what consciousness could be. And so like, based on those definitions, then there's a lot of different stimuli you could probably address, um, or sorry, maybe like phenotypes you could address as being or being a characteristic of, of consciousness. And then you can maybe like, um, like, address or like categorize different species into like conscious states or something like that which definitely makes sense um which it's also like really interesting like the ways in which like philosophers like compete right like for example like with professor Anandavai that he was like very positive that plants are conscious and i think we were having a great discussion on iit um and like here you know you you don't lean in that direction which is completely fine but that's the purpose of philosophy right it's to explore those questions so like it's definitely really cool uh like personally to see to see those two con competing interpretations um and hopefully those competing interpretations uh affect different fields, which is my next question. Um, how has your work uh, maybe influenced other fields? Um, has con conscious research uh, in philosophy been used to like aid legal fields or like the educational fields or, you know, even in like the artificial consciousness realm, like AI realm, like how has your research um, influenced those areas? And have you worked with anyone directly? And if so, how was that experience? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um... So yeah, consciousness research specifically is very interdisciplinary. So it's one of these areas where the scientists actually take the philosophers very seriously. Um, so, you know, I was, I was saying earlier, you know, I think that philosophy does have a lot to offer science. That doesn't mean that scientists are always going to take us up on that, right? Um, and so there are some, some areas within psychology and neuroscience where, um, where philosophy is not really taken as seriously as it should be, but consciousness is an area where it really is. Um, and so, you know, researchers like Hakon Lau or Victor Lame, or um, I guess, you know, some of the integrated information theory people, um, Christoph Koch or someone, they directly like read philosophers, talk to philosophers, often have philosophers kind of collaborating with them on their papers. Um, so yeah, so the science, like the neuroscience and the psychology of consciousness, is very closely 
tied to philosophy. Um, there are some people in the perception of mind lab here at Hopkins right now who are working on this phenomenon called inattentional blindness, which is um, basically where um, when you're not paying, so so one, so one of the classic experiments with this is like, you show people a clip and there's a bunch of people playing basketball and you say, well, count all the people who have white shirts, how many, how many times do they pass the ball? Um, so just focus on the people with white shirts and um, how many times do they, they pass the ball, ignore everything else. And so you're just attending to one thing, right? Your attention is very focused. And so people do this task and they kind of do okay. And then the researchers say, okay, did you notice anything unusual? Um, and people say, oh no, I, you know, I was just focusing on, on the, uh, on the people passing the, what, passing the ball. Is that, is that weird? And they say, well, actually there was this guy in a gorilla suit, right? Who walked across the screen and then you watch the video back and it's like, oh, oh wow, I completely missed that. Right. And so then there's this question, well, were they unconscious of the gorilla? Um, or were they conscious of it, but um, just not very conscious of it, or it just like didn't leave out with them or something, and they just kind of forgot. Um, and so there are people in my lab kind of working on that now, and you know we kind of talk about that. Like this is one of these things where like that philosophical interpretation and then exactly how they're just designing the experiments is very um, closely intertwined. Um, okay, so there's lots of interaction with the science now. The other thing where consciousness the other kind of place where it really shows up is in debates about ethics and the law. Um, and so especially when it comes to, um, so, you know, it, if we want to do right by animals, right, it really matters, well, who can feel pain, um, who can suffer in various kinds of ways. Um, and, you know, if you're one of these people who think, who thinks, well, look, only humans are conscious, then you can see, well, actually, you know, it's kind of fine to do whatever you want to any other animal, right? If you're someone who thinks, well, cows are conscious, but they're kind of less sophisticated than humans, then that probably means, well, there are certain kinds of things which you can do to cows and it's okay, but probably not beat them. Um, uh, and it really matters like, well, are insects conscious or not? Um, are lobsters conscious or not? Are oysters conscious or not? Because, you know, maybe it's bad to kind of cause them pain um, if they are conscious. Um, and it's not just about consciousness, right? So it's also, so like to take the stuff about, well, how complicated is your understanding of time? Like that probably matters a lot as well. So like for cows, um, you know, part of uh, getting milk from a cow is you have to get the cow pregnant, have the cow give birth and then take the calf away, right? Um, now, is that okay? Well, it depends on how the cow feels about it, how the calf feels. Um, and so it probably really matters does the cow realize that she had a calf and it's been taken away? Does she kind of remember that and think back to it? Does she, um, you know, realize, oh no, I'm getting pregnant again. They're going to take my calf away and kind of be anxious about that. Um, and so, you know, her understanding of time probably really matters to the ethics of consuming dairy as well. Um, and so, yeah. So then, you know, are the other fields actually paying attention to what consciousness science is saying and what philosophy is saying? Sort of, to some extent. I mean, um, you know, with the case of animals, you know, there are like really strong vested interests in favor of um, the status quo with, um, you know, keeping, keeping us from changing our behavior. Um, but there are some cases where both scientists and philosophers are being listened to. So like in the UK, um, there's a professor at the London School of Economics called uh, Jonathan Birch, who um, he recently wrote a 
big report to the government which basically said um, the various animals like lobsters and things like that they probably are sentient they probably are conscious at least to the extent of feeling pain and you know legislation should take that into account and that's kind of like that's an official government report now so the government kind of have to at least pay attention to that um here in the us um there's this project called the non-human rights project which is um they've basically been arguing in court that various animals um have the right to be free from captivity so this is mostly and so they're basically trying to use things like habeas corpus to say that like chimpanzees and elephants like they can't be held in captivity unless you do unless you put them on trial right um in the same way that you would for a human um and they have kind of appealed to a bunch of philosophers as expert witnesses um and so yeah it's we're being listened to to, to some extent um but i think you know we certainly people should listen to philosophy more that's the, certainly my my view yeah yeah definitely and then i think also just like philosophy of mind is like um you know it's good that it's you know like scientists actually like are listening to philosophers in this field but there's so many other fields where you know they we need to, like they i guess you guys need to really like be listened to more um especially i think like political philosophy as a whole like there's a lot of like states um where you know political philosophy if entertained or at least understood properly would be so much better like super beneficial um but yeah i can definitely see how consciousness or at least researching consciousness could be aiding in ethics like animal animal rights um and even like you know eventually down the line i know like this iit and like um kind of just like this this field of consciousness is heavily um employed like computationist computationalists um and like maybe like some 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 like cs kind of people because it's a it's an interesting field to kind of like map out and you know like with the spark of like neural networks um in cs then i guess there's a lot more interest in the brain and then that interest can be like into uh, cognition and like consciousness overall so definitely a lot of aspects where you know consciousness research and philosophy can imply it can influence other research um in other fields but i kind of want to move on now to like philosophy outreach and like you know we talked about the impact that philosophy has but what about like philosophy outreach so you've done some work um in like rethink at rethink in new york city when you were at columbia um for our audience members who are unfamiliar could you please explain what rethink uh is and like what your work was in in rethink and how it went yeah great um yeah very excited to kind of talk about this so rethink is basically a group which was set up by some graduate students at uh, Columbia, um, but it also includes members who are at various other institutions around New York. So I know there are people from Fordham, there are people from the New School, I think there are people from the City University of New York. Um, and what they do is they basically team up with existing programs and um, have, kind of facilitate philosophical discussion. Um, so some of the programs they've worked with have been so they like they've gone into prison for example and um worked with prisoners like so you know you'll just kind of go and have a philosophical discussion with with some prisoners once a week for a, a few weeks um they have also worked with an organization called sanctuary for families who work with um survivors of intimate partner violence um now the one which i did several times over quite a few years actually was called the Osborne Association, which is like a, a community organization in the Bronx. And they have this program for, um, I think, 16 to 24 year olds who have just come out of prison. So they're on, on parole. Um, and 
most of what that program is is helping them kind of get jobs so it's like giving them education in like you know basic skills of writing a cv and like what are your expectations like what is expected of you in a job and what um um like helping them with substance abuse issues and things like that um but we would go in as part of that program which is maybe like a six-week program i think um and we would go in three or four times and each time just have a philosophical discussion for an hour and this was really good both because so thinking about philosophy was often really helpful for them because um you know we would do topics like justice or power or um, respect or love or you know these things which kind of very directly connect to people's everyday lives and it's like okay we're really thinking about this thing hard and like you know we go in and rethink um together like what what do i really think about this topic like what really is respect um what kinds of respect do i want right so there's the kind of respect which we show to a velociraptor and there's the kind of respect which we show to you know a president or to our heroes or to our friends or there's the kind of respect which everyone deserves right and just like making those decisions thinking about them with um um and so just kind of directly like having those discussions people kind of learn stuff from that and you know i learned a lot from um from talking to the participants right so it's not it's very much a two-way discussion um and that leads into the other way in which it's really valuable which is for a lot of these people it, it may be their first real experience of a kind of non-hierarchical kind of education um so often public schools um or at least the public schools which they are exposed to um and certainly in juvenile prisons and things um it's very very hierarchical and it's very very kind of like this is the answer you're going to learn this answer um and the main thing which you're here to learn is like how to behave it's, it's not even the content at all right whereas what we're doing is a much more kind of open discussion we would you know we would often kind of give them the opportunity to pick what they'd be talking about the next week um and also you know very much encourage like look you can have your opinions and you should disagree with each other it's just that you've got to back up those opinions with reasons right and you've got to get used to giving reasons for your opinions and listening to the other person's reasons and thinking about them and thinking well okay there's something there there's you know so you learn these kind of skills and you get this sense of like okay there's more to education and kind of to self-education and to having philosophical discussions than i might have realized um and so that that was something which i think was was very valuable for for them and it was certainly very very valuable for me and for the other um mostly graduate students who are kind of facilitating this discussion yeah definitely and i think like that that type of philosophy outreach is like really beneficial and um just i think like about a month ago actually i think it just released on youtube like a few days ago but um dr Vas Michael Vasquez from I think UNC um, had a webinar on like the impact of like prison philosophy as a whole and I know like you know there's countless philosophers who engage in in prison philosophy and, and I know I know countless um, philosophers who have come from prisons um, like I think there is a famous I'm forgetting their name which is probably bad but there's a famous like critical critical theorist from France um, who was who was in in jail before and that's where they like, picked up philosophy as a whole and then there's like you know others like in like California who talk about like anti-blackness and kind of all of those things and how it structures um, their experiences and all of those things and I guess like the power of just humanities in general in prisons is like really really beneficial for um, you know those people who are inside of it um, I'm curious about like the specifics um, of like how those like discussions like really went like was it well received 
because um, a lot of people have negative views and negative stereotypes about these people, um, and often that's what leads them to not having job opportunities, renting opportunities for houses, um, etc. So what do you think um, about like that environment? Was it really accepting? Was it well received? Um, how how was it um, generally? And do you, and was there any like study or like statistic uh, on like the impact that Rethink had on the New York community? Um, how was it? received you mean by the participants or by... yeah participants yeah. okay um i would say it was quite mixed so um there were some people who found it really really valuable and i i, th I think probably the the majority either at least enjoyed it um and you know liked it as a, a different a new thing a different thing um and some of them were kind of like really like wow this philosophy thing was great how do i learn more about philosophy um can i you know, go to college and study philosophy and things like that. Um, you know, but at the same time, there are some people who were, you know, they 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 didn't want to to know about you know some random people coming in and talking to them about this thing they never heard of, um, and that's fine. And then you know, there are some people who started off that way, but gradually warmed up as they saw how the discussions went. Um, and yeah, so are there statistics on exactly what impact it had? No. Uh, I think it's something which it would be really hard to study statistically. Um, I mean, I think we ran kind of like end of semester surveys, you know, just like, you know, well, how, how did you rate this thing out? And, you know, what did you find valuable? What, and, you know, I, th I think we have that kind of data somewhere, but it's not like super rigorous statistics like science. I also yeah. just think that like me maybe like statistic isn't really that beneficial either. Cause like at the end of the day, it's like, you know, really what matters is kind of how like the people who are receiving that education really feel about it. Right. Cause that's kind of what really matters. Like the end end goal, like maybe like getting a job or like getting back into like civil society, those are kind of difficult to like really evaluate based off of like what your outreach was, because there's so many confounding variables in that, right? Like yeah. scientifically that would not be a good study. So yeah. like definitely understand that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's really cool to see like, that philosophy outreach, um, especially in like the New York area. Um, and, you know, I think over like the summer, there was like lots of injustices and like political riots and stuff like that. So it's a really, really cool to see how philosophy has an impact in those sectors. Um, and I really hope that like, you know, this, this trend of like philosophy outreach continues hopefully into like high schools, because <laughs> yeah. like that would be really, really cool. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I should say, you know, we have a lot of, experience and materials for running discussions now so and I, I and we do sometimes have other people contact um rethink and be like well look i want to do this similar thing in our city or our state or whatever can you kind of give us advice and we're very happy to provide that advice and we have like a massive a massive bank of discussion materials now like for you know plans for discussions and i think we're very happy to share that kind of stuff if people want to reach out that's awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Brown, I really want to thank you uh, for your time today. Um, on yeah, thanks just... so much. This was a really fun discussion. Yeah, and I really learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience members learned a lot as well. So thank you. All right. Thanks so much.